So I began work on the text we're looking at today uh, about three weeks ago, and I began thinking about it and reading over it, and I just love this story. And I think in this story, uh, there is something so significant and monumental happening that I think is, is incredibly important for us today as a church. You know, uh, last week, uh, Pastor Robert shared with us a word that he learned, he kind of introduced into his vocabulary when he was a 10th, when he was a, a, a sophomore in college. And you guys remember what that word was? Paradigm shift. Uh, since then, I've known Robert for a very long time. Robert has introduced a lot other large words into his vocabulary. Uh, one of my favorite is sartorial semiotics. Can we all just say that together and ask Robert? No, you can't. But Robert defined paradigm shift like this. He said, a paradigm shift arises when the dominant paradigm under which normal science operates is rendered incompatible with new phenomena, facilitating a revolution in which a paradigm, a new paradigm is established. And he pointed out that a paradigm shift typically takes place when there is an influential people, person, in a field of knowledge, and as a result of a significant discovery, a monumental change of mind takes place for a person and therefore cascades into a revolution within their field. And last week he talked about how the Apostle Paul's paradigm shift uh, cascaded into an entire global movement that we call the Christian movement. And he suggested that outside of Jesus of Nazareth himself, the transformation that, that the Apostle Paul experienced is perhaps the most significant event in perhaps Western history. Well, today what we want to look at is another major paradigm shift. And if last week we looked at a paradigm shift that happened for the Apostle Paul regarding the person of Jesus... Today, we're gonna to talk about a paradigm shift that happened for the Apostle Peter regarding the nature of the church. And this shift is so incredibly important for us to consider. You know, the, far and away, the most difficult year in my life to date as a pastor was 2020. And it wasn't just the logistical challenges we faced. You know, we had never done video, you know, services before. And what do you do? Uh, worship and face masks and socially distance and, and all of the rest. There were so many issues we had to wrestle with and struggle through. And, but, but for me, the, the real issue in 2020, the difficulty and the pain of that year, it was not primarily logistical leadership challenges. It was primarily relational. During 2020, like actually many of you, I lost friends, and we lost people in this church, and we as a church were not alone. You know, statistically across the United States, I, I, I've heard multiple sources that say something like this, on average in 2020, uh, at, by, by the time people came back from, you know, quarantine or whatever, they came back worshiping together again, it, the, on average, in churches, a third of the people that were there before 2020 were no longer at the church. And then a, another third were more invested in your local church because they, they loved how you were leading the church through. And many of you are still here today because you were like, we believe in the leadership. You are a part of that third, you know? And, um, and then there was another third that they were just not sure about you. They were suspicious, 
And then over the last couple of years, that third that was suspicious slowly began to trickle off. Uh, so that in this church, there's probably at least half of the people that were a part of this church before 2020 are no longer a part of this church. And of course, we are not alone. That was standard across the board. And I've heard story after story from friends who are my pastors, and it was a painful, difficult year. And I think that at the heart of why that year was so tumultuous for the church has a big has, has a whole lot to do with the church maybe not getting, or maybe getting but not living in line with the radical paradigm shift that the Apostle Peter talks about in the text we're looking at today. And so what I wanna do is I wanna invite you to enter into this story with me, and it is a drama that unfolds in three acts. And the three acts go like this. Act one, we're calling the angelic vision it takes place in Caesarea with a Roman centurion. Act two is the hungry trance, which most of you know what that's all about. You've been in hungry trances before. You're like delirious. You're like, I need to eat, and then you're seeing things. Act two, the hungry trance. Act three, the awkward but transformational visit. And so let's begin with act one. So the story begins not with Peter and his experience, but rather with a Roman centurion and his experience. Now, up to this point, uh, we've been primarily focused on Jewish communities in the city of Jerusalem and surrounding in Samaria, but now uh, our, our focus now centers on a Roman city called Caesarea. It was a newly renovated city. It was beautiful. Uh, here's a, a modern image of Caesarea. Uh, it was about um, uh, 60 miles from Jerusalem, and it was on the coastline. It was built by Herod the Great, and it was built in honor of Caesar, and it was a magnificent city. You see uh, one of the big amphitheaters there. It had this, this very sophisticated, technologically advanced seaport that Herod had built, and uh, I know, like many of you, I was looking at this picture and I was like, can you surf those waves out there? I was like, is that surfable? Sean, is it surfable? You know, we can surf Caesarea. But it was a major seaport. And living in this great, magnificent, beautiful Roman city was a Roman centurion whose name is Cornelius. And he was a centurion. So this is an outfit that a centurion would wear. Uh, that's either a reenactment of a Roman centurion or it's just a really crazy USC fan. Um, <laughs> you know who you are. But a, a centurion was a professional office in the Roman military. He oversaw a cohort of 100 soldiers. He was wealthy. Uh, a centurion was paid six times the average salary of your basic soldier. And so he was doing well. He had status. Uh, he lived in a rather large estate. We know that because later on, we, we, huge crowds come and gather in his home. So he's got a big estate. He's got position. He's got power. He's got status. And, he, and he's working for the Roman military. But although he has all of this stuff, he had turned his back on the Roman gods. And instead, he had become a worshiper and one who feared the true and living God, the God of Israel, which was a big deal in the ancient world for a Roman centurion to not worship the Roman gods, especially the military gods, and to go and worship the true and living God was a big deal. And he was serious and he was devout. And he's described like this as 
a devout man who feared God with his whole household. This wasn't just something he kept to himself, his whole household is. And he gave alms generously to the people and he prayed continually to God. It's interesting, he's not a proper Jew. He's not yet a follower of Jesus. And yet nonetheless, this guy is living better than a lot of Christians I know. He is giving generously to the poor and to fund projects for Jews. He is praying continually. How many of us could it be described this way? We are devout, we give generously, and we are praying continually. You know, sometimes God is at work outside of the church in people's lives. And what's interesting in our text is God takes note of his devotion. Look at what it says. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God. So he is praying, he's devout, and one day as he's praying, he sees this vision. And in this vision, an angelic messenger, and he speaks, he says, Cornelius. He knows his name. And he stared at him as you would in terror. You're like, what on earth? Like, I'm just praying, you know? I don't even know if my prayers are hitting the ceiling, coming back down. Is anybody hearing me? And it turns out somebody's listening. Somebody has been listening and noticing for a very long time. And he says, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Somebody who's not yet a follower of Jesus, who is not yet uh, converted to uh, becoming a, 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 you know, a part of the family of Israel, and yet his, his, his righteous deeds, his giving has come before God as a memorial. And now he says this, I have a message. I have a message for you. He says, look, because you have responded to the limited light you have been given, you now will be given more light. So he says, send now men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. He's lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. Now that's just basically an ancient form of GPS. Like it's like maps, you know, like it's at the house, the tanner by the sea, you know, you know the place. He saw, send guys there, get Peter, because he, he has a message to you, for you. And when the angel spoke to him, he departed. And he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And he related everything to them and he sent them to Joppa. And so he sends these two Gentiles along with a Roman centurion or another Roman soldier off to Joppa which is about 30 miles south uh, of Caesarea. Um, it's now modern-day Jaffa, uh, previously Joppa. According to maps, it, it is a 12-hour, 53-minute walk. If you were Robert Cavolo and you were a proficient hiker, you could go a lot quicker. Um, if you're me, you'd go at least 12 minutes, hours, 50. Anyway, they, 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 they're on it. And so these guys, they get, they're like, oh, God came, and he's got a message for us from this guy, Simon Peter, down in Joppa. So they, they go, they send, and, um, and now the camera shifts from the scene with the Roman centurion in Caesarea, now to Act 2, to Simon Peter in Joppa. And so we move from the angelic vision now to Act 2, the hungry trance. And we meet Peter, he's in Joppa, he's enjoying a Mediterranean breeze on the top of the roof. And look what it says. The next day, as they were on their journey approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop. 
you know, it's a, it's a beautiful Mediterranean day and he goes up on the housetop to enjoy the breeze, but also to seek God. He goes up there to pray. But while he's there, he became hungry and he wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Now, we don't really know why he fell into a trance. It, it's interesting, there's a different word here than in the previous one. It described a vision, but now it's a trance. And so maybe he had been fasting and he's praying and he's seeking God. And in the midst of all of it, uh, you know, he, he's hungry, and so his friends down below start cooking the meal, and no doubt the nice smells of that fresh-cooked meal is, is arising up to him, on the, and he's up there, and he's praying. He's like, oh, I'm, I'm trying to see God, but it smells so good. And he sees this trance and his food and all this stuff, and, and, and behold, he fell in a trance, and he saw the heavens open, and something like a great sheep, des, sheep descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And in it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And so he sees this vision and there's this sheet coming down and, and, he, and he sees it descending and he looks inside and inside it's just filled with all of these animals that as a Jewish boy, he was not allowed to hunt, he was not allowed to touch and he certainly was not allowed to eat. It was filled with lizards and pigs and rats and vultures and eagles and weasels and rabbits and, and, and it's mingled with some of the good stuff, lamb and cow and goat and whatnot. And, um, and, and there came a voice that said, rise, kill and eat. So he, he sees this sheet and there's all this food that he was, I mean, for the life of him. He could never eat. His parents couldn't eat. His parents' parents couldn't eat. His parents' parents' parents couldn't eat. Going on and on and all the way back. I mean, it was part of their culture and heritage. We don't eat. We don't touch. We don't hunt any of that stuff. And yet now, the voice comes. Kill it and cook it and eat it. And he's like, uh, no. No, I can't do that. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. You know, and this is, this is confusing for Peter because his whole life he was taught God commanded that he could not eat this food. And now he hears a voice from God that's commanding him to go and eat that food. And he's like, this is so confusing. I don't understand. Since I was a child, that stuff was off limits. The Bible said it's off limits. No way. I am not eating that stuff under no circumstances. Listen, for Peter, this was serious business. The diet for Jews in the first century was serious, serious business. What you ate could defile you. Who you ate with could defile you and render you unclean. Uh, who, the kind of plates you ate on could render you unclean. And, and, and there were stories told from Israel's ancient past about people who were so committed to the God of Israel, so committed to avoiding defilement by what they ate that they were willing to lay down their lives not to be defiled. And these stories Peter learned growing up and of course, it wasn't just the stories, it was also the Bible itself. There were entire chapters in the Old Testament that described stuff you could eat, and it was a very small group, and then everything you can't eat, and if you ate it, it would make you unclean, and so be very serious. And now the voice comes, no, go and eat it. And he's like, no, I can't do that. And we wonder, don't we? I mean, what's, what's up with the strict diet? 
I mean, this, this comes from the God of Israel, the creator of all things. He gives all of this carefully curated. Here's what you can't eat, and here's what you can't eat. Now, I know we as Americans of all people should know about crazy strict diets, right? Uh, I, I was, uh, not long ago, I watched a documentary about a guy who only ate raw vegan. And he had bright eyes and he was full of energy. And he's saying, look, if you want energy, if you want to have you know, clear vision, if you want to deal with your allergies, you know, avoid all meat and eat only raw vegetables. And then yesterday, my dad sent me a little video of a guy uh, who was going on the carnivore diet. He's like, no, avoid all vegetables, all carbs and everything and eat only meat. And he was bright eyed and full of energy and like all of his problems were being dealt with. So we know all about strict diets. You know, but what's up with a biblically defined, God-revealed strict diet? And why is that even important? I mean, why go through, you know, you've got, you've got a limited amount of stuff to talk to the human race about. And you're going to spend chapters defining the kind of food you can and can't eat? I mean, can't we get some more important stuff than that? I mean, what's up with a strict diet? Now, I know many of us, we get, like, I get, I get lizards and weasels and hawk. I mean, I don't want to eat that stuff. You don't want to eat that stuff. But what's wrong with lobster and crab and shrimp and carnitas and pulled pork and linguiça and sausage and bacon? Good Lord, what's wrong with bacon? I mean, what's the deal with the strict diet? Listen, the strict diet was, was a part of a larger set of stipulations and requirements and rules on the people of Israel. And they were given for a very, very specific reason. And what was that reason? Well, the strict diet, of course, was given at least first to honor the life of God's creatures. You know, the uh, Hebrew Jewish scholar Jacob Milgram points out in his commentary on Leviticus, we can't get into this, I love Leviticus, one day I'm going to do a sermon series called There Will Be Blood, and we're going to do it on the book of Leviticus, and it's going to be fun, you're going to love Leviticus. But you're like, what's up with all those rules? And, and Jacob Milgram points out that the Jews could only eat a very, very small, slender group of all of God's creatures. As if to say, you need to honor these creatures as your fellow creatures, also created by God. And in fact, when you ate those creatures, uh, you had to pour out their blood as an offering to God, saying that the life of this animal, it's not a commodity. It's not simply there to be manipulated and bought and sold and abused. The animal is not simply a commodity. It's a creature of God, and the life is poured out because the life belongs to God. And so on one level, the strict diet had some, some implications on honoring the life of God's creature. But there was another reason, and this is the reason I want to talk really about right now, is the diet was given to designate, to distinguish God's people and their unique identity. It was, to, it was to show them they are special and set apart and different. And so I had a different diet. They did different things with their male children. They would circumcise them at seven days old, and they would keep Sabbath, and they would have certain holidays, and they would treat their land a certain way, and they only wore certain kinds of fabric, and they did certain kinds of things that were very odd and very different. And why? It was to show that they were distinct and different, that they were holy, 
that they were set apart, that they belonged to God, that they had a unique role in God's world. You could almost say that their Sabbath observance, their circumcision, their, um, their, their food diet, their, 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 their food laws, all of this was like a uniform. You know, you think about um, a referee, and a referee has a very distinct uniform. Why? To, to distinguish him from the other players on the field and to say that they have a distinct role among everyone off in the field. It's not to say that they're better than everyone else. It's to say that they have a different role than everyone else. And Israel's laws all throughout the Torah that's specified very, these were given to show that Israel was God's set apart people chosen by God for a special role for the sake of the rest of the world and for a time. But the day would come when, when the distinguishing markers of God's people would no longer carry the same freight that they did in the old period, a new day would come when Messiah would come and things would break open. But Peter didn't understand this yet. You see, um, in, the, uh, in the ancient imagination, it was almost like this. Like, if you wanted to show that you were a part of God's people. You were special, you were distinct. You wanted to be included in God's people. You needed faith in Yahweh, the God of Israel, and you needed the Jewish uniform. You needed to do all the things the Jews did, all these cultural practices, these things. Put the, Jewish, put the uniform on and you'll show the nations the unique role you're playing. Now, when Jesus comes on the scene, what does Peter now think? Peter now thinks that for full inclusion in God's people, now what is required is faith in Jesus. Like now you need to repent and orient. The Jewish Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah has come. And so now you entrust your life, your identity, your soul to Jesus. Jesus is the one through whom we can be reconciled and brought right with God. And, 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 and you devote yourself to the way of Jesus in this world. But naturally, you wouldn't only devote yourself to Jesus, to his way, and have faith and trust in him. You also, you know, this is the Jewish Messiah, then if you were gonna be a part of God's people, you also should continue wearing the Jewish uniform. Now, this didn't mean that Gentiles, how are you guys doing right now? Are you guys tracking with all this? Okay, this is important for understanding the entire New Testament, and this is going somewhere, so just stay with me, all right? You, are, are we together? Okay, so, so they thought, look, faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and naturally, uh, you put on the Jewish uniform. And so this didn't mean that Gentiles couldn't become a part of the Jesus family. It just meant that if they became a part of the Jesus family, the family of the Jewish Messiah, they would need to, of course, start taking on the Jewish practices, observing Sabbath, circumcising their male children, uh, observing the food laws, and all of that stuff. And until they did that, you didn't enter into fellowship with them. Like, they were, they were out you know, they, it, was, it was us and them, and we are the ones who are faithful and obedient to all of this stuff. And, and, and so then this word comes to Peter. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. And what is happening in this moment is God is saying there is a new day that is broken in. 
And no longer is it faith in Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, plus the Jewish uniform that makes you a full, included member of God's people. Now it is just faith in Jesus. The food laws and all the stuff that distinguish you, like, and he says, and then he, and then he draws this out. The voice came to him a second time and he says this, what God has made clean, what has he now made clean? All of those uncircumcised, you know, non-law-abiding Gentiles who are, Jesus said, the, the voice says, they have become clean and what God has called clean, you do not call common or profane or impure. And he's, he's like confused about this. He's like, what does all this mean? This sheep kill and eat and I've never eaten that and now you're telling me to take that unclean stuff and bring it a part of my body and to uh, in, engage and embrace that stuff? He's like, I don't know. But then it happens again, the sheep with the, with the animals and then it happens again, the sheep with the animals. And he's like, God is saying something. And, and, he's, and, he's, and it's tweaking his mind. You know, it's gone against his entire upbringing and he's wrestling over this whole thing. He's in the middle of his wrestling. All of a sudden there's this, Peter, you've got some guests. There's two Gentiles and a Roman soldier here and they want to talk to you. And Peter's like, what? And then the spirit speaks to Peter and he says, rise and go down and accompany them without hesitation for I have sent them. So these guys that Cornelius sent to Peter get there and uh, the spirit says, go with him. Peter's like, all right. And he goes and he starts talking with him. They're like, look, we've come from Cornelius. He's invited you to come to his home and to tell us all the details, the full story about Jesus. Can you do that, Peter? Peter's like, I guess I can. And what's interesting to me is that now we are gonna enter into the third act so we move from the angelic vision to the hungry trance, and finally now to the awkward, the, the, the awkward visit. That's, of course, going to be transformational. And what's interesting to me is who is the one who has orchestrated this entire visit? Who has been the matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match? Find me a fine, catch me a catch. You know, God got Cornelius and then God got Peter and now he's gonna bring them together and he's gonna send Peter to go to Cornelius and his household and to tell him the good news about Jesus. But let's be clear, this is going to be awkward because look, Peter, get this, has never stepped foot inside a non-Jewish home. He was a good Jewish boy, and he grew up learning, look, you don't go contaminate yourself with the Gentiles, not Gentile homes. There might be some idols there. You don't eat Gentile food. Uh, you, you, no, you stay away from that. You know, if you go there, you might get Gentile cooties, you know, and you'd be contaminated. You'd have to go into quarantine, and we know we don't like that. And, um, and, and so he gets to the house, and... And he, he's, 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 he's like, I don't know if I can enter this house. Why? Because he's narrow-minded and bigoted or crazy? No, because he knew the Old Testament law. And he thought, if I go there, I'm going to become unclean. 
And so they get there and he's like, I don't know. And they throw open the door and there's this whole crowd of people inside. All, it's not just like one Gentile. It's like a whole crowd of them are in there now. And he's like, my whole life I've been taught, you know, I can't go in there. I'm going to be ceremonial and clean. I'm not going to be acceptable to God. And he's thinking, if I do this, there's no turning back, you know. And he's like, he's just sitting there and, um, and, 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 he, and he just decides like, okay, here it goes. And he goes inside. And when he entered, when he enter, entered, the thing that he probably feared would happen happens to him. Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshiped him. He's like, here he goes, like idolatry happening. I'm just gonna, like, this is uncleanness all around me. And he lifted him up and he said, look, stand up, man. Like, I'm a man just like you. You know, his first encounter with the guy who God sent him to talk to, and he rebukes him. Like, what are you doing? Superstitious Gentiles. And then, and then his opening line, he's got all the, he's got, now Cornelius is there, his wife and his kids and his cousins and his aunts and uncles and servants and soldiers, friends, and they're all, they're gathered together in this crew. And Peter stands up and his first line is so offensive. And it lets us know what a struggle he's having between this like old thing that he knew and, and, and the new thing that has come in Jesus. And I'm sure he was nervous and, you know, the room is filled with anticipation and they're like, it's Peter, he walked with Jesus, he's gonna talk to us now. And they're all listening and Peter opens his mouth and look what he said, he says, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone from another nation. In other words, he's like, look, Look, as you know, we don't hang out with y'all. As you know, we don't come to your house. I shouldn't even be here. This isn't my idea, but I'm here. God told me to come here. You know, because the Jewish laws were exclusive and excluding. They were forming a distinct people through these very particular practices. And he's like, if I go in, I'm going to be unclean. I got to remain apart. And he's like confused, you know. And the next line gets even worse. He says, but God has shown me that I should not call any person common or profane or unclean. And the implication is this, look, until yesterday, I considered all of you all profane and unclean. And I had the Bible to back me up. You know, we are God's separate holy people. We don't eat your food. We don't marry your women. We don't drink your water. We don't share your plates or go into your houses. We keep kosher. We observe Sabbath. We keep the holy days. We circumcise our male kids. We wear certain clothes. We are set apart. We are in and you are out. And he would have been exactly right. Except this, something dramatically new had broken into this world. Jesus came proclaiming the long-awaited kingdom of God. It is broken in. In Jesus, something had been unleashed in the world for you. And so he says this. And, and you almost think he's counseling himself in front of him. He opens his mouth. He says this. He, he said, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. God is not a respecter of persons. God doesn't play favorites. But in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And as for the word that he sent to Israel, preaching the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, he's like, look, you asked for, for a word. You wanted me to tell you the story. Let me now tell you the story. 
And he goes on and, and he tells him the story. He says, you all know what happened throughout all Judea. You know, they weren't far from Jerusalem. They heard the stories beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed of the devil for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he both did in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. And they put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him from the dead on the third day and made him to appear, not to all people, but to us who had been chosen by God as his witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. So Peter is doing what Peter always did when he was preaching these days. He got up and he told the story of Jesus, his life, his miraculous power, his authority over the demonic, his ability to release the captives, and ultimately his death and his resurrection from the dead on the third day. And Peter is, is he's, he's, you know, he's working the thing up. I mean, just imagine Peter preaching. He's getting to his climax. You know, God raised Jesus from the dead, and now he's about ready to, you know, call the band forward, play a chorus of Just As I Am, invite people to come forward and say a prayer. And he's getting all ready for a closer. And, and, and suddenly, suddenly, like, he's not even finished, and something happens that freaks everyone out. The same thing happens in this room of Gentiles that happened on the day of Pentecost, 10 to 12 years previous, when the rushing mighty wind came and filled that group with the Spirit of God, and they spoke in other languages they did not know to say that this is going to be a global faith, and suddenly it happens in this room with uncircumcised Gentiles, Roman soldiers and guards and all this stuff. And they're, he's just like, you know, and the circumcised believers that are there with Peter, they're like, whoa, whoa, what's happening? And Peter's like, what's happening? And uh, when Peter was still saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all who heard the word and the believers from among the circumcised who had come with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit was poured out even on the Gentiles, for they were hearing them speaking in tongues and extolling God. And it's like the boundaries have changed. And all of a sudden, all that they had known is gone. And they're like, this is happening. This is really happening. Our world is turning upside down. And you know, in the ancient, you know, early Christian church, the symbol of full inclusion of the people of God, do you know what it was? It was baptism. That was the public, like you're immersed and you come up, you're a part of this family. You are fully in. And look at what Peter says. He says, can any, anyone withhold water for baptizing these people? These uncircumcised, non-Sabbath keeping, non-kosher eating people. Can we just bring them in apart from all of that stuff? because they just received the Holy Spirit as we have. Obviously, God accepts them. Why shouldn't we? And he commanded them to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, and then they asked him to remain for some days, which means that he didn't just preach that they were now fully included. He didn't just give them the inclusion in the baptism. Now he is sitting and sharing table with Gentiles who are uncircumcised in their unclean house with their unclean food, and he is sharing life together with them. And the story ends. Now, do you see what is happening in our story? What we are witnessing here is a holy shift. This is a holy paradigm shift. And the shift is this. Peter went from faith in Jesus plus P 
people becoming culturally Jewish equals full inclusion in the family of God to this. Faith in Jesus plus nothing equals full inclusion in the family of God. And the result of this shift was a brand new kind of community that the world had hitherto not yet seen. N.T. Wright describes it like this. He said, in the ancient Near East, the idea of a single community across traditional boundaries of culture, gender, and ethnic social groupings was unheard of. In fact, it was unthinkable. But here it was, a new kind of family had come into existence. Its focus of identity was on Jesus. Its manner of life was shaped by Jesus. Its characteristic mark was believing allegiance to Jesus. In other words, the mark that somebody could be a part of this family is not their cultural background, it wasn't their skin color, it wasn't their political ideology, it wasn't their nation of origin, it wasn't any of that stuff. It was, do you ground your identity in the love of God revealed in Jesus? Have you been reconciled with God through faith in Jesus? Are you loyal and faithful to the way of Jesus, which preeminently is characterized by agape love for neighbors and love for God? He says, this, the vibrant, excited group of Christ followers were doing something radically countercultural. Nobody was trying to live in a house where all the old walls were being taken down. 